And then in his second message, he shared that the Spirit changes the nature of what he encounters. And he shared many examples in the Scripture of that. And then last week, Brandon shared with us that because he encountered us, many of us, that he changes us. Okay? And so he shared this example. I told him to leave these out because I wanted to use them today. Of course, what a glorious promise we have where we're headed, right? Redeem people with a new body. I'm looking forward to that. And just like Paul, what a wretched man I am. But boy, it's going to be great one day. But we're not going to focus on this today. Of course, we want to live with the end in view, right? And then this... Scripture calls the natural man, unredeemed, living in a messed up body, right? The Scripture says about this person right here um, that he cannot accept or he does not accept the things of the Spirit because they're foolishness to him. Now, I don't know if any of you are here, but that's the condition and then it says in that passage, it says, he cannot, he cannot understand those things because they're spiritually appraised. No spirit, you can't appraise those things. This is a scary place to be. And I hope by the end of this message, this appears more scary to those of you who fit this. And I'm not just talking about here, I'm talking about anybody that will see this message, okay? And so I want to tell those of you who are here that are here, unredeemed in a body of flesh I'm not going to focus on you today I'm going to appeal periodically to this side but I want us to really focus on what most of us are redeemed folks living in a fleshly body that is hammered daily okay so I'm going to leave that up for us to see we live in a black frame and uh, so Let's talk about it a little bit. In the scripture, there are those who have defined or identified in excess of 150 different titles and roles for the Holy Spirit. And listen, those titles and roles um, really minister to our greatest needs. And when I say greatest needs, I'm purposely using the word greatest. For instance, it says that he's a comforter. Well, we think comforter comes just when those times I need comfort. We don't realize we need comfort all the time. I wake up in the morning knowing I need comfort because there's going to come something in that day that's going to try and take that comfort away. But because he lives in me and his presence is there, I can experience his comfort. I can wake up in comfort, and then when those things come up through the day, they don't blow me over. I walk in comfort. Okay? I need that. That's a daily need. It's a great need. It says that he's our intercessor. How many of you have ever tried to pray and couldn't? You didn't have the words to say. Yeah. Who prayed for you? Who interceded for you? The Holy Spirit within you. Okay? He's our helper. He's our advocate. He's our teacher. He's our witness. A witness that we are the children of God. The presence of the Spirit in us is that surety of ours. He's, a, he's our deposit of what's to come. I mean, these are great things that he is. He's the very presence of God in our life, okay? He's also called the spirit of many things, the spirit of life. I, I mean, we need that, right? The spirit of grace, the spirit of holiness. Listen, these are daily needs. These are great needs that we have, the spirit of wisdom. He's the spirit of justice. Scripture says he's the spirit of glory. And then the scripture says he's the spirit of truth. And that's what I want to focus on today. I want to remind you what Jesus told his disciples before he went to the cross. In John 14, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does, it does not see him or know him. By the way, that's the natural man. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, all things, 
and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Earlier in the book of John, he said this, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. This is Jesus talking. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. There's the picture of the Trinity. It's John 6. And then Paul, reflecting on this in his letter to the Corinthians, said, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What a glorious promise. The spirit of truth would come. Well, do we need the spirit of truth? We talked about the need of all those roles and titles of the spirit. Do we need the spirit of truth? Listen, there are many warnings in the scripture while we live in the black frame. The Lord knew we would have that time on earth where we would have to live in the black frame. And so, like the psalmist, I mean, the uh, hymnist, hymn writer wrote, he wrote, we are prone to wander. What is it we sang? That one line in, um, what was it? Forever wandering. I mean, that's indicative of being in the black frame. We're redeemed individuals. We live in the black frame. Now, listen to how Paul said it. Paul really defined the strategy and the tactics that are involved here. Okay, and doesn't, wouldn't Paul know? I mean, here's a guy, probably the most learned man that we read from in Scripture. I mean, his teacher was Gamaliel. I guess he was a really great rabbi. I mean, the guy was super learned. The Lord would eventually use him as a bridge to the Gentiles. I mean, here's a guy that could really delineate the word. And where was he at? Well, he had believed what he thought was the truth so deeply that any enemy of it, which was the church, had to be eliminated. And he took steps to eliminate them and was by his hand, the blood was on his hand of many believers who were killed because of their belief in Christ. How did he get there? See, he understands this whole process. Here's what he said to the Corinthians. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there's a work. There's a work. It's really an attack on the word, the light of the word. And listen, this is a historical attack. There was a whole period of history where just getting the word into the hands of the people caused execution of men who tried it. I mean, we have the Bible in English because of men who died for it in the past. Well, when the enemy could not eliminate the word at that point, what's he doing now presently? He's, he's eliminating its authority. He's eliminating his sufficiency. We have believers in the church who believe this is not enough. That this is not absolutely authoritative. You, gotta have, to, you have to add to it. And once we have eliminated ultimate, absolute authority, we're in trouble. Because the spirit of truth can't speak into that. Because he speaks from absolute truth. So the enemy does that. He attacks the word. And then he uses a couple of tactics. 1 Thessalonians says this, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. You know, Paul's been in Thessalonica. He's taught these folks, and he's concerned about where they're, where they're at. He says this, um, Concerned about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would have been in vain. The time I spent with you and in, in nurturing you and maturing you, that the, the enemy would tempt you in ways that would draw you from the faith. 
So temptation is one of his tactics. Another one of his tactics is found in 2 Corinthians. This is, again, Paul speaking. He understands his tactics. He walked in them for a while. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So we're warned about his tactics, and we're warned about his strategy. Why do they work? Because we're susceptible, we're enticed, we're prone to wander. We live in the black frame. So we're warned. And so I want to talk a little bit about some of those scriptural warnings. Some of this language. I've just pulled scriptures out. There's, there's these phrases throughout the word. And, and I've just kind of give you an example of them. Okay. So he'll say something like, see to it. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men. According to the elementary principles of the world. Rather than according to Christ. Or what about this? Be on the alert. Be of sober spirit. These are warnings. Okay? Your adversary, the devil, and his demons, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How about take heed? All through the scripture, take heed. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. By the way, that's just before no temptation has taken you. Such as common to man. I mean, that's 1 Corinthians 10. Oftentimes, he says, watch. In 2 John, he says, watch for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished. Or be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Why, why would... He'd be concerned about you losing your steadfast position because we are prone to become unsteadfast. I mean, we live in the black frame. We need the spirit of truth. And then all through the scripture, it's beware. Beware of false prophets. Beware of every form of greed. And there's this whole section of Deuteronomy Beware that you don't forget the Lord. Beware of base thoughts, wicked thoughts, things that you think of that they're just worthless. They, they have no value. Beware of those kind, that kind of thinking. Beware that your hearts aren't deceived and you follow after other idols. And then he says this very interesting thing. Be, be aware, beware that you don't become ensnared. That you're not trapped. Israel was getting ready to go in and take over the promised land. And the Lord didn't want them to be ensnared by the traditions of the nations that were there. And he said, just beware. Beware. You're mine. You're my people. But you can fall. I, I, I like this word snare. Well, I don't like it, but. You understand, it, it's, it's an interesting word. I mean, some of you hunt. How many of you hunt? Do you use traps when you hunt? Okay, so nobody here hunts. Okay. We're the hunted. Okay. Yeah, listen. Listen, what, what are some of the characteristics of about, about a trap? Well, the first one is it's concealed, right? Purpose of the trap is to stay hidden. By the way, most of us don't realize we've been ensnared until we're in the snare. And then all of a sudden, we can think about all the reasons why we got there. That's not a good time to get in the, to understand what in a snare does when you get in it. That's not a good time. But it's concealed for a purpose. I mean, it's too late when you're in it. Listen, I can't tell you, of course, I've lived longer, so I've I know more older people than most of you do. Um, listen, I can't tell you how many older people look back on their life and because of a decision they started when they were a child and never dealt with the seedling of that sin, 
it is now this great oak tree that they that shames them. Now, now the Lord's taken away our shame. We're rede- if we're redeemed, it's, that's all gone. But it hinders them from, from doing anything purposeful for the Lord because they don't feel like they're adequate. It's real hard to uproot the, the oak when we could have taken care of it back here as a sapling. See, sin is like that. Where you come to the end of your life and you regret that you made all those horrible mistakes. And yet the Lord still redeems. I mean, what man can't do, right? God can do. Okay, so it's, it's concealed. It's also baited. What's, what's bait? Come this way. Come this way. And you know what? When, if you're a really good hunter, you put those traps where the most traffic happens, right? You want to you catch something. You want to look where all the traffic lines are for that particular animal. That's where you want to put your bait and hide it. Which... That's such a great picture because most of the time we get ensnared, it's because we're following a group of folks right into the snare, right? Our associations are so critical here. The Lord doesn't say, stay away from all evil people. He just doesn't want you to become influenced by them. We're the influencers because we have the truth. We'll learn more about that here in a minute. So it's baited. And then the third thing that's characteristic about a trap Listen to this. There's an ultimate purpose for a trap. And what is it? Well, to catch. Some traps, its ultimate purpose is to kill. And some traps, the ultimate purpose is to restrain. And when I look at that, I think, you know what? If I'm going to be trapped, I'd, I'd almost rather be killed because the restraining is this continual consequence. And don't you know that some of the things we've been ensnared by have a continual consequence? It just goes on. Listen, how long did it take me to get in the snare? Snap! I'm in the snare. Okay? Well, if it kills me, great. Now listen, human beings, we're not talking about animals here. It's still eternal consequences. But when you're restrained, there's constant, I mean the consequences keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. Some of us live in that place. We're ensnared, and the consequences just keep coming. That is the purpose of a snare or a trap. Okay, so what are the sources of this deception and this ensnarement? Okay, Brandon touched on it a little bit. Jerry's touched on it. There's three sources, and one of them is the devil. And I've already talked about the passages where he has this, these tactics and this strategy, so I'm not going to go back over that again, but I want you to know that He's a source of deception. But he gets blamed for a lot of stuff that he might have started. The other place, it's the deception, I really need you to understand this. And I've prayed this week that the Holy Spirit would illumine you because I can't do it with my words. I understand that. It's the world system. Listen, the world system has been a battle zone from all of history against the kingdom of God. Now, there's a mind behind the system. Revelation 12 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Listen, that influence is there, but it permeates the world system. Do you see it? It's everywhere. And we, and we play with this stuff. But in the entertainment industry, film, the arts... Music, the lies are rampant. And listen, some of the lies are obvious. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I listen to. There's no way I'm listening to that. Turn that, you know. And then some of the lies are subtle. And we listen to it and listen to it, and it gets into our hearts, and we begin to make compromises with that. If you don't know that there is deception in the government, you're not watching anything. The government is so deceived. Government leaders today are so deceived. The things they believe, the places they want to go, where they want to take our country. And listen, I'm talking about the whole gamut. We have believers because they, they, they live with the spirit of truth in them who are trying to make a difference. But if you just look at the government in and, it's, in and of itself, it is full of deception. 
and want to take and want to, wants to take you down that path. And we have really a whole generation today of folks that are walking right down that traveled road, and when they get snared, it's too late. It's in philosophy. Listen, philosophy, psychology. There was a day when many things were called sin because there was a foundational element of the word, the truth, in our society. And many of those things that were called sin then are now being called normal. Not just a disease. It went through the disease phase. Oh, they're just sick. They need help. It's, it's come to the point now where some of the most perverted things in our world are considered normal behavior. The world system is corrupt. Literature, business, medicine. The arguments for abortion are so twisted. Okay, I'm just saying. I'm not saying there's not believers in all these areas that are making a difference. What I'm saying is the world system as it is is a source of deception. Listen to what John says. The world, this is what Jesus said through John, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And then James said, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Listen, if your source of reference material is the world, it's entertainment, it's, it's literature, it's music, it, the, gov the governments of the world, the science that's given us in the world, if that's your source of information, inflow into your heart and mind, you're deceived. You know, the scripture says we're to be in the world, but not of it. The devil in the world will deceive us. But listen, <laughs> the third element is the flesh, the black frame. There's a fine line between demonic deception and self-deception. Hear me. When is it a, a strange voice? And when is it my belief system? We have to know this. Because sometimes, sometimes I'm the one deceived. I, I'm the victim, okay? Sometimes I'm the deceiver. I'm the victimizer. But listen, sometimes we're somewhere in between where we enter into a partnership with deceivers. One writer said it this way. We do this because to some degree we want to be deceived. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And listen, I'm talking to redeemed people in a black frame. And there are people all over the world in churches who are professed believers that believe myths. They've bought into the world system. Listen, it might have started with the devil. It might have started with the world. But something inside them says, deceive me. I want it. I want to believe it. Because there's something in my flesh that's forcing that issue. Um, John MacArthur, some of you know who he is, pastor of Grace Community Church. This year he's celebrating 50 years there. While he's been pastor of that church, he has preached verse by verse through the entire New Testament multiple times. Some of the times when he sits in the gospel, like he may spend 12 years on, on, the, on one of the gospels. Okay, detailed preacher. Listen to what he says. No one has a monopoly on the truth. I certainly do not. I don't have reliable answers within myself. My heart is as susceptible to self-deception as anyone's. 
My feelings are as undependable as everyone else's. I am not immune to Satan's deception. This is true for all of us. Our only defense against false doctrine is to be discerning, to distrust our own emotions. with the yardstick of Scripture and to handle the Word of God with great care. Here's the point. Because we live on the earth and must deal with life in the flesh, in the black frame, we will be susceptible on a daily basis to deception. Hear me. We will be, uh, we will be susceptible to deception on a daily basis. Now, I want us to look at the life of David. This is very interesting. Okay? So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And you know about David. Okay? I mean, a lot of integrity in this guy's life. Especially as a younger man. You know, they called all of the brothers in. Samuel called them all in because he's going to anoint a new king. Saul's messed up. They're going to bring in a new king. David's out with the shepherd, I mean with the sheep, right? He's the younger brother. He has no, in his mind, he has no reason to be with his older brothers at that point. Samuel just had to walk through and he, well, do you have, is there anybody else? Because it's none of these guys. Well, there's David, he's out there with the sheep. He's the one that Samuel anointed to be the king. And even knowing that, when he was dealing with all that stuff with Saul trying to take his life, he had a couple opportunities to take that man's life. He said, I'm not touching the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to make it happen before God wants it to happen. That shows a lot of integrity. Of course, we knew he slew, he slew the giant. He didn't, sl sl he didn't sl slay. That's it. He didn't slay the giant by saying, you think you're tough. I'm tougher than you. I killed the lion. I killed the bear. I'm going to kill you too. Oh, he did use that, but he said, no one's going to take my God's name in vain. No one is going to do this injustice to our nation. And by the end of this day, I'll have your head. I mean, he, his whole trust was in what the Lord was going to do through his life. Here's a guy whose, whose heart is after the Lord. He brought the ark, back, the ark back into Jerusalem. He built a home for the, well, he wanted to build a home for the Lord. He, did, he made all the plans. He reinstituted worship and praise 24-7 and assigned people to take care of those really important things in the temple. Skilled musician, wrote many of our psalms. Just a really, really good guy. And you know what he did? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And when he couldn't cover it, he had her husband killed, placed in, in battle where he would die. And then our text. Read it with me. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor, the rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he, brought, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him, Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Listen, this was a radical confrontation, an intervention, we use that word today. It was a confrontation that needed to take place. The sin David tried to keep hidden, but there were folks close to David that knew what was going on. It had to happen. 
But Nathan had to be real careful how he approached the king. And so he tells this story. You notice that Nathan waited for the Lord to send him. Which was just the right time. I mean, at some point, the Lord knows when brokenness is possible. Because a lot of times, and this is a scary thought, a lot of times brokenness is not possible. The Lord knows our hearts so much that he knows how deceived we have, we have become, how self-deceived we've become, and he knows there won't be brokenness even if I send all my godly men to him and, and confront him. So there was a time where he waited for that to happen. And then Nathan tells a story, confronts him, it's you, and lets David pronounce his own judgment. The man deserves to die. And then he says, thus says the Lord, you're the man. And following after that, through the Lord, Nathan says, don't you remember, David, all these gracious things I did to you? And if there was anything missing, I would have provided it. I've done all these things for you, David. And then he talks about the consequences. He says, he does say he won't die. But there are going to be horrible consequences, not just for him personally, but for the nation of Israel. Now what's great about the story is that David repents. And the scripture down there says that the Lord takes the sin away and says he won't die. But the consequences are great. And they're not taken away. And we see a lot of that in Psalm 51. And when Psalm is confessing and saying, Lord, to you and you only I have sinned. He, he confesses in verse 5 of that Psalm that he was born in sin. Our condition. The one that's over here. The unredeemed man in the black frame. Born in sin. And then he says this interesting in the verse after that. He says... You desire truth in the innermost being. David's coming to himself, right? He recognizes what happened. You desire truth in the innermost being. Therefore, God, you will make me know wisdom. He's going back to where the truth is, right? But listen, there's more to this story than just David. And there's that passage of Scripture where he goes, you know, in the, in the day when... Um, the kings are with their armies out doing their thing. You know, this happened. And, and I've heard it preached a lot. The preachers come out and say, well, here's the deal. If David would have been with his armies, this wouldn't have happened. I guarantee you that's not true. It may have been some attributing factor. But tell me, how, for, how many steps does it take for a guy like David to go from the position of prestige he was as the king of Israel to where in his mind, it was okay to commit adultery and murder a man. What did it take for him to go from here to here? It wasn't just he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not a geographical thing here. It's a heart thing here. He was deceived. And if he can be deceived, we can all be deceived. Listen. Listen. How many steps does it take for you to go from disliking somebody to hatred to physical violence or murder? How, how many steps does it take for you to deceive yourself to say that that's okay? How many steps does it take for you uh, as a religious leader? And we've seen this throughout, throughout our modern age, okay? like David, how many steps do you have to go from religious leader to adulterer? I mean, what have you had to do mentally? What were the mental gymnastics, the, the, the moral compromises you had to make inside the inner man to go from there to here, to say that's okay? How, how many steps does the troubled heart have to take to get where they're addicted. I mean, how many lies are told? How many um, uh, compromises are made personally to go from troubled heart to addiction? 
how, how many steps does it take for someone who's depressed and lonely? How many compromises do they make in their lives to where it's okay for them to take their own life? See, deception is not this. Listen, if the enemy came and just tried to openly say, yeah, you need to kill yourself, most of us would never do that. We don't, we don't buy into the, the end result. We never buy into the end result. We buy into every little teeny tiny compromise leading up to the end result. And if we're not careful, we'll bump right up to the end result and fall off that cliff. I'm telling you, this is a really difficult message for me. Remember, we're talking about a redeemed person in the black frame. See, the redeemed person can appraise things spiritually. It's the unredeemed person. Listen, if you're in the black frame and you're not redeemed, this should scare you. I was going to say scare you to death, but we don't go there. This should really frighten you. Because you can't consider even the spiritual aspects to be, your condition is such that you cannot understand even what I'm talking about. And the scary part about that is you're sitting there going, well, I'm not getting it, I'm not getting it. You're already in the trap. You've lived in the trap. You don't know anything outside the trap. It's normal for you to be in the trap. That is a frightening place to be. So, Let's do a little self-evaluation. We're going to take some time to do this. I'm going to go pretty quick because I want to I get done. So are we being deceived now? Let's not even consider the devil or the world. Let's just look at the scriptural warnings given to us, okay? And let this be self-evaluative. You, you evaluate yourself. Okay? Some of these may not fit you, some of them might. But listen, I'm going to say you throughout this whole thing. And in my notes, I have you equals I. I've already been through this. Okay? So you put I in place for you. So I'm going to say you, but I'm not saying it. Maybe I should stand on the floor because I don't want to look down on you. I'm not looking down on you. This is, this is me. This is us. Okay? But I've used you in all these cases because many times that's the way the Scripture reads. Okay, so let's go through this. Are there things in the Bible that the Spirit of Truth has revealed our right to do to you, but you don't do them? Or do you try to explain the authority of Scripture away in just that area? Well, you know, that's, they did that in the Old Testament. I don't have to do that now. Or whatever it is. You, you're, you're doing some mental gymnastics to make it okay for you to not do something that the Lord has already revealed to you is right to do. James 4.17 says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it's sin. Do you live just an intellectual faith? In other words, you are comfortable with sitting under biblical teaching from week to week. And if you've, lived, if you've been in this church for, for the years here that Jerry's been here, it, you've had some strong biblical teaching. So you can sit under it from week to week, but you have no urgency for the gospel to affect your daily life. James 1.22 says, But prove yourself doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves, who deceive themselves. When confronted with a sin by someone who cares about you, it doesn't have to be someone that cares about you, by the way, if you're confronted with sin. I'm just making it easier. They care about you. Do you defend yourself? Do you blame others? Do you blame the circumstance? If we say we have no sin, 1 John says, we deceive ourselves. See, see, we're in the black frame. We can deceive ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Oh, we need the spirit of truth. Do you have a, a, a proud attitude or a haughty attitude about your intelligence, your talent, your strengths, your social status, your clothes, your skills, and other things? Do you base your relationships on those things? 
In other words, I'm going to just hang around people that are, are as smart as I am or wear the same clothes as I do or, or I, I would, man, I'm, I'm too skilled to spend time with musicians that don't know very much. I mean, do you make decisions like that? Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Do you harbor hate in your heart toward anyone? Do you act mean or angry toward others? I mean anyone. First John says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He's lied to himself. When dealing with life's issues, is the Lord and his word the last place you seek out for answers? I'm not just saying, oh, Lord, please help me, please help me. Okay, that's not all I'm talking about, crying out for, for, for the Lord. There's a, there's a place for that. I'm talking about, but it's, you'll, you'll do it in that energy. Am I still on? Whoa, what just happened? Woo. I'm really on, okay. Listen, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For wisdom of this world is folly with God. Do you look and talk religious? I mean, there's a ceremonial observance that people can see in you. You worship, yet have trouble with your tongue. Filthy talk, gossip. What about when you're asked to do more at work? Do you badmouth your boss? Or say when someone doesn't drive as well as you? I, that's, I, I'm sorry, that's, that, Renee will attest. I, I talk to people that drive, and I, I catch myself now. Listen, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Does it seem to you that there are some things you have gotten away with because no one caught you? Or are you apathetic about the seriousness of some of your actions or behaviors because no one knows about them? You do things that are wrong when no authority is present and act as if your actions have no consequences, or at least serious consequences. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows. That will he also reap. Do you believe your goodness earns some kind of favor with God? When bad things happen to people, your thought is they are being punished. And when good things happen to people, your thought is that they are being blessed by God. What a horrible God to believe in. Do you compare your actions to the actions of others to make yourself feel better? Have you softened towards sexual sin because you know someone who is caught up in it and assumed the love of God will win over an unrepentant heart? I can't tell you how many grandmas I know who have a granddaughter or grandson who came out as a homosexual or a lesbian and now all of the things they believed about the sin is out the window. They will no longer take a stand on it because they feel like they're coming up against their grandson or their granddaughter when they can still love their grandson and granddaughter. But they've made that moral choice that now okay, they've bought into the world system. It's okay for some. I can't, I can't judge them. And No, they stand judged. They, you don't judge them. Grandma, love on them. But don't withdraw. They may withdraw from you because you're going to say, I, I, I don't agree with the sin. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's such a hard statement. But it's the truth. Do you believe that those parts of the world system that you play with that you read or listen to have no effect on your soul? 
Do you think that the regular companionship with those who have no desire for the things of the Lord will not affect you? That you can make deep relationships with people who have no desire to follow after God? I'm talking about ministering to the world. That's not what we're talking about. And we're not pulling out of the world. Find those unrepentant sinners. Okay? But if you're just going to hang out with them and pull out the cigar and, the, and the, the adult beverage and hang out with them to prove that it's okay to do all those kinds of things because they, to, to kind of companion with them, no. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I have a couple sons who, are, who, who love the Lord and really are concerned about the outcasts. But the struggle for them has always been how much influence do the outcasts have on them? The big question is, do you think you can avoid deception and error and its consequences apart from God's word? That there's something out there more enlightened or more wise than what God has offered? I won't take the time because I don't have it to read Proverbs 1, but at some point, if you'll read Proverbs 1 starting about verse 24, you're going to find out some things about the truth of God's word and the, the ignoring of it what, it, what it does. Hopefully, this little excursion has proved to us that we're not as strong as we think we are. Are we the redeemed man? I don't want to discount what God has done and who we truly are. Our identity is in Christ. That is the good news. But the scripture is full of warnings to those of us in the black frame. And we have to be concerned about that. It can't be something that we think about once a month or once a year. It's a daily attack. No wonder Paul says, what a wretched man I am in this body of flesh. And that wretched is miserable. I'm enduring trial constantly. Are we fighting it? Are we enduring it? Are we pressing against the wretchedness of our body of flesh. I look forward to the white frame, but I'm not there yet. Okay, so finally, what can we do to avoid being deceived? I'm going to walk through this pretty quickly. Okay, the first thing we can do is we can continue in the word. Continue in the word. Psalm 119 says this, Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. And it is, first and foremost, sin against God. Treasured the word in my heart. It's interesting that when the Lord, through Nathan, was challenging David, in verse 9 of that passage in 2 Samuel 12, he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Or de-esteemed it? Why have you not held the word of the Lord up in your life? Here's where you got by doing that. And it's where we'll get if we de-esteem the word of God. So there's four things that we can do. There may be others, but there's four things that we can do to continue in the word. One of those is to love truth. To truly love truth. I mean, the, the, pro, the, the ones who... Uh, who pinned the Proverbs would say, it's more valuable than gold. Seek it out that way. John 8, so Jesus was saying to those Jews, the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know, and that word know means know absolutely. You will know the whole truth. And the truth will make you free. Not only must you love the truth, you need to walk in it. Walk in the light, 1 John 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, of course, darkness, what's that mean? Hide, deceive, cover over, uh, right? We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, very interesting phrase, we have fellowship with one another in other words fellowship is hindered by our deceptions of course we don't want to go out in the light if we've deceived ourselves into some of these really dark perverted things we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin so to continue in his word we want to keep his commandments 
1 John 2 says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. John 14, 27, he who keeps my commandments is the one who loves me. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. He's self-deceived. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. We're to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. And then the fourth thing in continuing in the word we need to do is we need to test the spirits with the word. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen, remember the Bereans? Acts 17? They were of much noble character. It's a little church. It's, it's, church, it's the First Baptist Verdon. It's a little tiny church. And Paul came and preached the word to him and says they were of much noble character because they sought the scriptures daily to see if what they were saying was true. Test the spirits. Okay, so continue in the word. Second thing we can do to prepare from being deceived is to be humble. Humility is a prerequisite for discernment. You want discernment, you've got to be humble. Okay, David in his prayer of confession in Psalm 51 said the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. So how do we do that? First of all, we need to acknowledge our potential for self-deception. I hope this message has done that for you. You at least recognize that you are daily susceptible to deception because you live in the black frame. Jeremiah said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So acknowledge, just acknowledge it. I, I can be self-deceived. I can be led astray. I can be trapped. And all those things are bad. I don't want that. Okay, you have to distrust personal feelings. We live in a society where feelings control thought. So much so that if someone disagrees with you, you got to deal, they, they can't argue the other way. They can't agree to disagree. It's, I got to get rid of that person. The, the, there's so many emotional responses in how we deal with the deceptions of the world today. Listen, you got you to distrust that. I, I can't claim self-sufficiency. I am not sufficient apart from the Lord and his word. I am nothing without him. On my own, Paul says, on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. And then John said, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Listen, we don't stand here as preachers to try and give you new truth. All we do is take the truth and try and, and expose it to you. But the Holy Spirit is your teacher. You need to say, is that true? Is that true? Is that true? I'm just a guy. I'm a man. I, I, can, I can fail in the way I present the truth. I can do it inadequate, adequately. But the Holy Spirit is your teacher. And then to pray for discernment. Okay? You're humble. You've, you're not living according to your own personal feelings. You're not, you're not self-sufficient. Pray for discernment. Psalm 119, I am your servant, verse 125. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. And I love this passage in Philippians because this is um, Paul's prayer for the Philippians, for the believers there. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay, so, continue in the word, be humble, practice encouragement. Listen, we're a church of small groups. Practice encouragement. You know what Hebrews 3.13 says? Listen to this. So critical here. 
but encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have to be in each other's lives and we need to be encouragers daily because it's so easy for us to become deceived and be overtaken. And then the final thing I want to share with you. Continue in the word. Be humble. That's a prerequisite for discernment. So cry out for discernment. Practice encouragement with one another. And then receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of truth who abides in you. Accept it. Depend on it. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And listen, when you live that way, it will sound like foolishness to the world. And they'll make fun of you. And they'll tell you you're unscientific and you're unenlightened and that's an old religion and it's a crutch. And they'll say everything that seems wise to them and it's all foolishness to God. And we don't want to live there. I don't mind being considered a fool by the world's standards. But I don't want to be considered a fool by God's standards. So, does this look more inviting to you? I got just a little bit of what Paul must have thought when he said, what a wretched man I am. He so longed for the day when he'd receive the body that would not be tempted and deceived. But if you're here, I hope the fear of God just descended on you because if you're going to walk away from this place or wherever this is heard if you're going to walk away from and maintain your entrapment and live there as if it's normal we all plead with you don't do it because the consequences are too great it is not normal to be here it wasn't God's plan for you to live unredeemed and stuck in a trap for eternity. Do you know there's so much more glorious out of the trap? Let's pray. So I've asked the Lord this morning to reveal to us all any area of self-deception that's the immediate but to at least comprehend that we have a war on our hands that we must fight and we do not have the strength to do it on our own but you know who lives inside us the comforter the intercessor the advocate our pledge the spirit of life, the spirit of grace, the spirit of truth. So as you sit there, you and the Lord, settle whatever issues the spirit of truth has spoken to you today. Father, we humbly come before you as your people. And Lord, maybe we've apathetic about what the battle is what's involved with the battle and Lord maybe we've played a little bit with the world more than we should or maybe there's just some perverted things that need confessed father whatever it is we want to walk free of the trap father make us aware of the subtle deceptions of the enemy and the influence of the world. But Lord, please, please guide us into all truth that we might not deceive ourselves and take those incremental steps to destruction. 
guide us in the battle. And we will win to bring you praise and glory. Amen. Appreciate it.